Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. For 10 seasons, What Not to Wear shook millions of viewers from their dressing doldrums. But it was Stacey London's role as mentor and fashion fixer that allowed guests and millions of fans alike to see the inextricable link between what we wear and who we really want to be. Since What Not to Wear wrapped three years ago, Stacey's been busy. She joined The View as a host. She penned a book, The Truth About Style. She launched an independent stylist network. She gave her notorious streak of gray hair a leading role in a slew of Pantene ads. And most recently, she headed back to the TLC network with her new show, Love, Lust, or Run. But despite her reputation as a tiger mom of tough love, Stacy has redefined how we think about personal style. She's handed over the reins to everyday women everywhere to use as a form of liberation and strength. It's never about how young, rich, or pretty we are. It's about getting real with ourselves at the most crucial moments in our lives and allowing our clothes to become the uniform we wear to experience them in a whole new way. Hi, Stacey. Hi, Christine. I'm so happy to have you here as a guest on Unstyled. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very honored. I mean, it's it's great to do anything with you. Oh, please. Thank you so much. Don't give me this oh, oh go please. On. No, seriously. What Not to Wear ran for 10 seasons. It That's did. an incredible successful 10 seasons. Um, it really put you on the map, made you a huge star. But I could actually say that you put the show on the map. Oh, that's very kind. It's true. Because the show and the concept of the show, which you were a living example of, just changed the way people thought about the things that they wear. Yes. That did not occur to me. It did not really come fully formed to me until I got to what not to wear. And part of the reason was that I had this skill set in high fashion, right? I'd started at Vogue. I I assisted incredible editors and stylists, and I worked with amazing photographers. My first shoot ever was with Irving Penn. I mean, he was my idol in high school. It was amazing. That is amazing. That's a skill set that was really, I mean, drilled into me to be able to style a photograph, a you know, a 100-pound, six-foot model. But it wasn't until I went freelance and I started doing more commercial work and working with like real actors and kids, men, all sorts of things that I didn't really have uh, the breadth of knowledge for at the time, that I started to like notice that, you know, you want everybody to look and feel good, right? And then poof, I get this show out of the blue. It really was amazing. Things do show up when you need them to. And I was bored of styling. I just didn't know what to do. And I got to the show, and after having been in fashion for so long, and I was like, okay, I really don't care what Karl Lagerfeld is doing with tweed this season. Like, I, you know, let I can tell you he's doing tweed. So whatever variation it is, like, good for him. But it wasn't very interesting to me anymore. And I felt kind of empty about it. And when I got to What Not to Wear, I noticed this unbelievable amount of, you know, power that we were giving people by putting them in, in a different pair of jeans, that they went from feeling lousy about themselves for having gained 10 pounds and losing their sense of style while having three kids, to putting them in an outfit that just made them remember or recognize who they are. 
And that is when, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I studied philosophy and psychology and literature in college. Now I know why. Now I know why fashion and psychology actually have, or should I say style, and psychology they meet. They, they they meet at the corner of happy and healthy, just like Walgreens. <laughs> and nobody at that time was talking about it <laughs> that way. Funny. Nobody was talking about it that way. Everybody was still of the mindset that fashion was this exclusive, elitist, kind of secret coven, right? I mean, you know, television shows And you like, were either beautiful and rich and you had it, or you weren't. Or you weren't. And, and exa- exactly, very binary, very black and white. And then you had shows like I mean, I'm going way far back. The Swan was like the first makeover show, but that was like a little bit cray-cray. And then you had Queer Eye and you had Us and you had Project Runway and you had shows that were actually showing you what fashion can do, what it can do, not just what it is, but what it can do and how people, individuals can take hold of it and make it their own instead of being dictated to by an industry. And that for me got more and more and more important in the way that I would talk about Style. Style is about an individual and fashion is an industry. And it's an industry that runs on insecurity. That's why, you know, if you don't get the latest thing, you feel like you don't belong. It's a or you're not multi- good enough. You're not good enough. It, and that's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry, because you tap into somebody's insecurity. That's some powerful stuff, right? But there's a way to turn that around. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, and it doesn't matter what size you are or how old you are or what the color of your skin is or what gender you identify with. It is possible for everyone. And that is like the most amazing thing that I learned in the 10 years that I worked there. I think it was one of the first times on television that I'd ever seen, and I would include it in the fashion space, Mm -hmm. that I'd ever seen an emotional line drawn between what was happening to this person, this mm. character, and how they were feeling. Yeah. And I think that it was just always about the superficial side, like how it looked. You know, did it make you look thin? Right. But, you know, here's the thing. This is the great thing about style. The reason that it is such a great antidote when somebody is not feeling themselves is because you do see it. It's visual. But when you see a very fast and visceral change in yourself, Once you see that that's possible, you start to wonder what else is possible. You know, the idea of seeing is believing is a shortcut. It's like seeing is feeling something different, which means that you can think and believe something different. And that's what leads to a new belief system. And that's why the visual is so important. That's why style is this awesome tool to have in your arsenal when you can't change your belief system, when you don't know how to change your, how you feel about yourself. And that can be on a super deep level. I mean, insecurity is boundless, right? It's just like it's in people's subconscious. They can't let go of the story that they've told themselves. And by changing what you see is the first step in changing what you believe. I think it also has a lot to do with our closets. It does. <laughs> so true. And you don't want to deal with it, and you can close the doors on it. And I think, obviously, that's a huge metaphor in life. And and I think that there is something so symbolic about the shit that we stash in our closets. Oh, for sure. There's this sense of, like, I have so much stuff and I have nothing to wear, right? I mean, we hear this over and, and over and over again. It's not who I want to be. It's not who anybody wants to be. The, now we take it for granted that the closet and getting dressed in the morning is always going to be a thing. It's always going to be a hassle. And I don't believe that. Like, I actually believe that your closet should be a place of joy 
of fun and your imagination and creativity. And it can be so wonderful. And all you have to do is organize it so that it is. And that means going through and slogging and doing the work. But once you front do all that work at the front end, the reward is that then it's sort of manageable, right? And that also means having to come to terms with the things that you need to let go of. I am not big on sentimentality when it comes to clothing. I don't like to keep tons of things that don't fit me, even though my weight goes up and down and I should probably just like hold on to a few things. I just don't want to. If I lose weight, I want new things. And if I gain weight, then There's I There's always another I maxi dress out there. Exactly. But the other thing about it is that some things are no longer appropriate. They don't fit who I am and my life now. And to hold on to them out of some sort of nostalgia doesn't necessarily serve you in that sense of joy right? Because it keeps you rooted in a person that you were and not the person who you are and who you're becoming. So I think it's very important to be honest about what needs to go from your closet. I think a lot of being honest about what needs to go is being honest about who you want to be. Yes. And, and I think that's self-awareness. I think that's where a lot of the pain and the frustration comes from. I know that I felt that way myself. You've talked a lot over the years about dealing with and um, and living with body dysmorphia. Mm. Um, tell me a little bit about that. And, you know, is it something that you still have to have to address, you know, that you have to kind of struggle through? For sure. I mean, body dysmorphia isn't like the flu. <laughs> it doesn't actually go away. Um, not really ever, I don't think. I think there it's are... A flare up at certain right. times Right. I, I think life, that it, it goes into remission and then it can flare up. But it is one of those things that I have struggled with my whole life. And body dysmorphia is one thing if you look at yourself in the mirror and you really can't see yourself and your body doesn't really change, you know, if you don't gain weight or lose that much weight, you know, usually a five pound uh, uh, range. Then body dysmorphia, it's really quite difficult because you just simply cannot see yourself. It's more complicated for somebody like me who has a history of eating disorders because my body has looked so different all through the years that the body dysmorphia gets confused with like just not being able to see myself anymore because one year I'm 20 pounds lighter and the next year I'm 20 pounds heavier. And that's a big, you know, that's a roller coaster. So I really, you know, as much as I try to kind of deal with that, I've also come to the conclusion I'm a fluctuator. So finding my middle ground is going to have to be a wider middle ground than maybe most people. That's really smart. Right? Instead of beating the shit out of myself to basically say, like, I don't know how I look. I don't know how to dress. I have been literally every size um, from, like, a double zero to a size 16. But let's be honest. You seeing yourself on television, that just really amplifies it, though. I mean, I can only imagine the couple of times that I'm on television, I can't even believe how different I look. Yeah. No, it's unbelievable. People meet me, and they're like, oh, my God, you're so different in person. Oh, my God, you look so much thinner in person. I'm like, I shoot me. Uh, I'm like, thanks for telling me that since usually my job is on television. So (laughs) I really appreciate that. Um, But, you know, look, whatever other people think, that's another thing that I've had to get over. I mean, the amount of hate that is available for reading on social media on literally any platform could kill somebody, no matter how strong their ego is. Um, it's too, it's painful. So that's not how I'm going to judge what I look like in the mirror. I can't do that. But what I can do is be kinder and gentler with my body so that what I'm seeing isn't something that I'm always like, I may look heavier to myself than I am. But that doesn't mean that I can't treat myself lovingly. And that doesn't mean that I can't still find something that I'd rather wear over something that I'm trying to stuff myself into. I can be that person so that 
I can wear different sizes at different times depending on where my body's at and how I'm feeling and make myself feel good. That's in my control. Nobody else gets to control that. And that's the thing about body dysmorphia. You can live alongside of it and not have it take over in the way that you perceive who you are. What are three things? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That women in their 20s and 30s can look forward to in their 40s. You don't care so much what people think, and your style will really probably be pretty decided. You'll have an idea of what you want to say to the world because your identity will be so much more cemented in experience. And uh, what's another thing? You know, you don't have to go out every night. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, you know, I wish someone you told just me that don't. when I was in my 20s. Yeah, I'm like trying to think. I'm like, you don't, you, you are not going to want to be as social. There is a solidarity between uh, my friends that I did not have in my 20s. You know, some of them are newer friends. Some of them are super old friends. But there's such a loyalty between my friends now, men and women. I don't remember my 20s. I was running so fast. I was like, don't look down. You know, don't, don't look up because if you do, you'll trip. So I, I feel like 30s are the most fun decade in the sense that you're not making sort of the youthful mistakes of your 20s. You're still trying to define yourself, but that is the decade in which you can do it. You hit 40 and it's like, God, you look good enough to get away with whatever you did at 20, but you're smart enough not to. <laughs> Let's talk about your boyfriend for a second. Okay. He's he's an artist too, isn't he? He is. He's a photographer, really. And we were really close friends before anything ever happened, which, by the way, I highly recommend. I did not know that it was such a good idea to be friends with somebody before you started dating them instead of just dating them and then realizing that they were schmucks. The great thing about him and the great thing about meeting him now is that I'm finally... Now in a, meaning in your 40s. Now meaning in my 40s, is that I finally feel like I'm in a place where I can have a relationship that feels healthy and not dramatic. And I don't need the up and the down and the you know the roller coaster ride. I don't need that to feel passionate. And I think for a long time I did. I think that a lot of that comes from just wanting this desire that we feel like we have to check those boxes. Of and I course. think that when you start to get to this place in our lives, we're both in our 40s, we're, we're close in age, I think that you start to let those go. And you start to realize that, you know, my life is good. My life is is moving forward and I have control over it. And I think that once you have that reassurance that you are in control of your destiny, I think you start to let go of that, that, that need for extreme situations exactly. because that's the only way you're going to be able to get a box checked. Yeah. And honestly, I think that part of being you in your it. 40s is that I don't think it's possible to feel like you're in control of your life in your 20s, certainly. Um, and I think that your 30s really is about grappling with checking boxes. But I would also venture to say, and this is something that's really been preoccupying me lately, is this idea of um, ageism is still an issue, particularly with women, and especially in this country. And 
I don't think that I could be as happy or as comfortable as I am now if I wasn't this old. <laughs> and part of it is that you don't feel like you actually do understand and inhabit your own personality, your own body, yourself in a way that's not about comparing yourself to other people. But when I really think about it, our generation of women, we are the first generation of women that don't need anything from anyone. I mean, we, you know, my mom was a frontline feminist. She taught me, like, you go out, you make the money, you do the things, you don't rely on somebody else. That's the first time in the history of people, <laughs> of any people, that women are completely free in the sense that they don't have to get married. They don't have to have kids. They can make their own money. And there's a real complication there because... They can have their own sex. Yeah, they can have their own sex for sure. And what's so interesting to me about all of it is that if those are the traditional markers, right, by which we measure women's worth... And validation. Yeah, I think it's so much about validation. For so long, people were like, you didn't get married? You know, they were looking at me like I'm a crazy person. I'm like, and you did? Yeah. So there, you know, there's, there's that. But I mean, I was like, well, okay, so I didn't get I married. I love those conversations, exactly. by the way. They're I mean, great. Like, they still know, happen occasionally, too, which do. is so insane. But this is what I mean. I All know. of there is this kind of secret judgment over this new uh, species of woman. I don't know what I don't know what to call her yet. But I'm definitely her. Kate Bullock, um, Rebecca you know, Traster. Yes. There's a lot of writers that are finally tapping, tapping into, into that. this intense this intense kind of moment, you know, where people are finally recognizing the the power, the sheer power of of unmarried women. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that New York uh, Magazine article where it's like single women are the strongest voting, you know, you know, group. Um, I thought that was pretty incredible. It's but it's not even just about being single. It's the choice of uh, being single and not having children. And there's still this weird, I think, lizard brain, you know, when you're not viable biologically anymore, if you can't have kids, then all of a sudden it's like, well, what's what's your worth? What's your worth value, right? This is why older men always date younger women because they decide, you know, they're children. They don't want to have kids till they're in their 50s. <laughs> and they want to have them with 20-year-olds. Eventually, I think biology will catch up to our society and women will, because we're going to live to be so much longer, women will be able to have babies in their 40s and 50s and it won't be a big deal. But for now, I think it's a really interesting thing. I mean, of course, I could have a child. I could adopt. I could have a surrogate. That's not what I mean. It's not that I couldn't be a mother if I wanted to be. But there is this sense of where is the use value in this particular age group from 40s, let's say, to 80s, because we're going to live to be 100. These are actually our most vital years as as people, as women, as grownups. So I don't ascribe to this idea that you get to your 40s and it's like, yeah, you know, I know myself. It's like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm so I'm so with it. I'm like, I, I really feel myself. And that we're saying it out of some need to kind of justify the fact that this is a culture that's, you know, so concerned with youth and and being thin and being rich. Neither you nor I have children. And I don't want to say that that's something that kind of bonded us when we first met. But I do think that there is a certain understanding that I think friends in my age group that don't have children just get in a way. Mm. And I'm not saying that my friends that have children, um, I don't enjoy being with them. They don't love me. They don't make they don't make me feel different in any way. But a lot of people still do. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I think that's a very uh, normal societal reaction. Regardless of how accomplished I think both of us are, certainly I can speak on behalf of you. And I think that there is just something that that you're tapping into right now. And it's you've had some really wonderful quotes recently in some interviews where you're you're digging into this. I am. And, And I like it. You know, you've been touching on it in The View. And I think that this dialogue is going to continue to get richer, and it's going to it's going to just make everyone less siloed in their worlds and in their experiences, whether they're parenting or not. Yeah, and I think that you know it's parenting, but it, it is also ageism, and really, there's no other other way around saying it. I mean, we are this culture that is consumed with this kind of youth, beauty, rich thin, whatever, you know, we've got advertising and uh, media that reinforces that over and over and over again. And, you know, I I, I don't think that that's going to change, to be completely honest. But I do think that I think it is changing, though. I, I, what I think is changing is that it's not the only choice. It's not the, you know, to me, what I'm finding as I age is that I feel so much more centered, so much more willing to lift other women up, whereas, you know, when I was growing up, there was much more of the sense of competition between women. You know, only one person was going to get the job. Only one girl was going to get the guy. And I don't feel that at all now. Now I'm like, what can I do to help my fellow sisters? You know, what do I do? How do I lift them up? Do I produce a a television show for them? You know, whatever it is. But something that makes, I feel so connected to women in a way that I couldn't when I was younger. I, I mean, that was also part of my own insecurities for sure. But it feels so celebratory to me to be present with women now in a way that I wasn't really able to be before. So, you know, when I look around and I see a society that does not revere women in their 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, I'm astounded because there every other culture understands that age should be revered and particularly matrilineal cultures. and protected. Yes. I mean, we are the we are the keepers of all of this knowledge. We're, you know, why why aren't you asking for advice and help and all of these things? But I do think that you're right that there that the needle is moving mostly because I think that millennials are moving the needle. Who knows? Because there's a lot of talk, so it could all be very performative. I, I I'm trying to give them credit, but we'll see. Uh, what I do think they're doing <laughs> is moving the needle in terms of right talking about gender talking about sexuality, talking about fertility, uh, fertility, talking about um, uh, being married versus being single, you know, living together and never getting married. You know, there's a lot more openness. And I'm also starting to see it even in, in younger people when it comes to race, even though we have such problems in this country with a younger generation. I feel like they're so much more open and understanding and less divisive. The one thing that I really see with millennials that I feel like I can learn from is that they're not binary. They don't believe that there's just black and white. And that comes to everything. And so it's race, it's weight, it's it's beauty, it's it's all sorts of things that there's a much bigger expansive definition of those words for our younger generation. I think that they have this extreme desire to see themselves in that landscape. And mm-hmm. if it's black or white, most people are going to be excluded. Yeah. You know, it's very funny because I, I, Refinery is one of those sites that I feel is so incredibly inclusive, which is also new, right? When it comes to a, a site we that really is, try. Right, that started really about fashion and about style and the way that it's expanded has, I mean, it's become a culture site. 
And it really is for all different age groups. And I think there's so much, what's so great about it is that it can feel totally niche. And yet at the same time, the more niche you go, the more each of those groups gets to experience the other. Stacey London, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled. I adore you. Thank you so much. I adore you. And I'm pretty sure that we're related, if not sisters in a past life. Oh, we're definitely related. They're definitely distant cousins. I hope you're inspired after hearing Stacey London's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29. Copy and research support provided by Leela Brilson. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist. We are launching the season with two episodes, so stay tuned for my conversation with Danielle Brooks up next. <laughs>